Amen. All right, take your Bibles. Go ahead to 1 Peter chapter 1 is where we're going to be. Uh, it's allergy season if you haven't figured that out yet. So I don't have COVID. I just have massive allergies. So if I start coughing and hacking, I promise don't come after me with a can of Lysol. It actually might help allergies too. I don't know. I'll give it a shot. Um, so we're going to, um, we're going to, oh, well, <laughs> let me read the passage and then tell you what we're going to walk through because this, this one's a little tricky, so we'll see how it goes. And, and with a group this size, I, I love this because it gives me an opportunity just to kind of be a little bit more like myself, which should terrify you. Um, if you get more like myself, it's probably less like Jesus, so I have to be a little careful, but uh, this is, this is going to be fun. So First Peter chapter 1, starting verse 13, let's read it. Follow along with me. It says this, Therefore, with your minds ready for action, be sober-minded. Set your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, don't be conformed to the desires of your former ignorance. But as the one who called you is holy, you also are to be holy in all your conduct. For it's written, be holy, because I am holy. If you appeal to the Father who judges impartially according to each one's work, you're to conduct yourselves in reverence during your time living as strangers. For you know that you were redeemed from your empty way of life, inherited from your fathers, not with perishable things like silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Jesus Christ, like that of an unblemished and spotless lamb. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for you. Through him you believe in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and your hope are in God. So when we start this passage, the very first word of our passage is, is an evidence, it's a sign to us that we need to consider something as context as we head in. The first word, therefore, is really important in Bible study. If you're ever doing a Bible study, this is the most corny phrase I've ever heard in anything ever taught to me, but it's effective. You see a therefore, you have to ask what it's there for. Okay, completely goofy, but it's true, and it works. So you see the word therefore, and then you have to consider. So what, what is Peter saying? Why is he, what's he talking about therefore? Therefore, in light of the fact of the things that he just mentioned in the previous 12 verses. What is it that he mentioned in the previous verses? He talked about this amazing salvation that we have. He said, you have been mercied. You have a living hope. You have an inheritance that is imperishable and protected. You're being guarded by God. You can live um, with great hope and confidence during seasons of trial and difficulty because they are coming from the hand of the almighty God who can be trusted and he's using those things to sharpen you and shape you and mold you. And, and, and the salvation that you have, prophets didn't understand it. They spoke about it, but they only had a piece of the puzzle. Angels long to experience it and peer into it. And yet you have it. What a great salvation. Therefore, because you have a, a great salvation, the key thought for our passage today is this. Because of your great salvation, be different. Be different. How, how, what are the pieces of that? Well, you look down and look at verse 17. With your minds ready for action, he says, be ready. So as you're trying to be different, you need to be ready. The old King James Version translates that. Gird up the loins of your mind. It's a very familiar phrase we use every day. <laughs> um, it takes a little explaining. It's like, what does it mean to gird up the loins of my mind? What, 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 what the, um, Peter's actually going for is a picture that they would all be familiar with. When they got dressed up, when they dressed for the day, they didn't put big boy pants on. They wore robes. 
And the difficulty was, was when the robes were long and flowing, they tended to get in the way. Uh, yesterday, we were at a, um, a wedding ceremony. My wife wore a long dress, and same thing happened. Trying to go upstairs, it gets tricky. Um, I couldn't pull it off, especially with my legs. No, I'm just kidding, sorry. <laughs> Told you, small group, you're going to get some weird stuff. Um, <laughs> I couldn't pull it off. There's no way. I'm not, I'm not um, coordinated enough. Um, but she's able to adjust it so she can walk. The same thing with them. Their robes would be so long, they would keep them from running. They would keep them from being able to go on a journey. They would keep them from doing any activities. They would keep them from escaping if they were being chased. And so the, the, what they would do is they also had a sash, a belt that they would wear. They would gather up their robe and they would just tuck it into the belt to keep it away from their legs, giving them the freedom of motion that they need to go on their journey to engage in battle, to escape from being, from being chased. And what Peter says to them is, okay, as I'm calling you to be different, the first thing you need to do is you must be ready. Get, gird up the loins of your mind, pull everything together, and get ready. Get focused. That's the next word. He talks about being sober-minded. It's the exact opposite of being intoxicated. Just be sober-minded. Don't allow everything around you to kind of lull you into this state of intoxication where you're no longer paying attention. This, this being different thing is going to take a lot of work. And so you, you better get busy about the work. So get your minds ready, get focused, get ready to work, and be careful because the tendency is for us to return back to our old ways. He says this in verse 14, don't be conformed to the desires of your former ignorance. Don't be pressed into the mold. That's what the word conformed means. Don't be pressed into that mold. Think, think when you were a kid, you used to play with that Play-Doh stuff. It got cooler and cooler the older I got, like the toys that they had, where it was like, man, why didn't they have that when I was a kid? Like the, the Play-Doh dentist set, I don't know if you ever saw that. Like you'd do it and it would create teeth, and then you had a little drill and you could drill in it. It's kind of cool. Evidently, I missed my calling as a dentist. Um, but that's the idea, the mold. You would be pressed into that mold. And he says, don't be pressed into the mold of your old way of life, your old way of thinking. Now, a lot of that thinking, in your old way of thinking, um, comes from Satan. And so what Satan wants to do, and it's, uh, we're going to talk about that when we get to chapter 5. It talks about how Satan, um, he, he mulls around as a roaring lion, seeking the one he can devour. He's active, looking to wipe us out. And part of what he does, and we see it in Genesis 3, at the very beginning of the Bible, is his, his mode of attack was to challenge your view on God. Challenge who God really is. What Peter is saying is, okay, listen, you've got to be ready. Get your mind ready. Be focused. Do the work. Be careful, because your tendency is going to be to go back and think the way you used to think. So let me ask you a question. What did you think about God before you became a Christian? Just think about that just for a second. What, was, what were the thoughts you had about God, and how have those changed now that you know Jesus? If you were to ask the average, I'd say American, but not even American Christian, if you'd ask the average American to define for us um, what a Christian was, what Christianity is, they tend to land in the camp this is, this is big word time. The camp of moralistic, therapeutic deism. Now, 
I paid a lot of money for seminary, and I still don't understand those three words, so I had to study it, so let me tell you what it means. Okay? Moralistic therapeutic deism. When they described what Christianity was, they would describe it in such a way that you would think you could live a moral life, a good enough life, where if you lived good enough, God would let you go to the good place and not the bad place. Okay, if, you, if you lived, now the problem with that moralistic view in American culture today is we have set the bar so very low that you're considered good as long as you don't murder somebody or beat up an old lady. And, and, and so the bar is set so very low, and, and, and it's, it doesn't matter how good you are because the, the, God, doesn't, God doesn't care if you're good. To enter God's presence, you have to be perfect. And that's a problem that we have. And yet Jesus Christ came, lived a perfect life, laid down his life, and applied his perfect righteousness to us so we can come into God's presence. So, so the average American would say, you just need to be moral, moralistic, therapeutic. As they thought about God and his work in our lives, it was viewed more as a therapy than anything else. It was viewed like this. God exists to make me happy and help me feel peace. God is my therapist. So, as you'd explain Christianity to the average American, it would be moralism, therapeutic, and deism, which is the idea that God did, in fact, create all of this. And then he just kind of took a vacation, and he's got no involvement in the day-in, day-out operation or sustaining of this current world. And what that continues to go back to is, God exists for me. And the danger of going back to the, 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 the desires of your former ignorance, the thoughts that you had about God before you became a Christian, before you understood that you needed to repent of your sin and trust in Christ and Christ alone, is that your basic thought pattern was this. You were God. He exists for your delight, which makes you here and him here. And Peter says, no, no, no. Do not go back to the other ways. What you need to do is be different. And to be different, you've got to be ready. You've got to be focused. You can't return to your other ways. Why? And Peter tells us, because he is holy. Now, we've got to be honest. That word brings up certain feelings in your heart, right? Um, I had a, a teacher who had a very deep, deep voice, and he would begin each class with quoting this out of the King James. And it would sound, Be ye holy, for I am holy. Well, it's intimidating. Kind of scary. No idea what it means. And so you begin to develop an understanding. So, so if you, sitting right there, you can talk to somebody next to you, or just, well, I'm going to grab a drink of water because my throat's a little raw. Um, so let me do this. How would you define holy? So think, if, if you don't want to talk to somebody, come up with your own definition in your head. What does it mean to, for God, that God is holy? What is that? That was a cheap way for me to snag a drink of water. So, <laughs> so let, me, let, me, let me do this. Holiness is defined as different. It's the easiest way to define it. It is defined as different. The Hebrew word uh, for holiness is kedash. Kedash. The Greek word is hagios. The idea means to be separate. 
to be cut off from, to be set apart, to be distinct from, to be different. And so as we come to an understanding of what it is that Peter is reminding these people of, it's this, God is holy. He is infinitely above and beyond all of us. He's uniquely unlike us. He is like no other, uh, no other, that's for you farmers. He's like no other, there we go. He, it's because, you ready? The next word I have written in my notes. He's utterly <laughs> and wonderfully different than me, than any. That's why we just sang the song we sang. The wonder and the astonishment that comes over us as we consider who God is should overwhelm us. Here's, here's some pictures of how different God is than I am. I, I have a beginning. April 26, 1974, my, my beautiful face came into this world. I have a beginning. I get birthday cards reminding me that I had a beginning. God has not had a beginning. He has existed forever. God is eternal. I need air to breathe water to drink, food to eat in order to stay alive. God needs nothing or no one because he's self-existent. Um, as hard as I try, I still am only able to be in one place at a time. I'm pretty quick, but I still can't pull off being in two places at once. God is everywhere, always present. He is omnipresent. I'm limited in power. I know that surprises you based on my physique. <laughs> I'm, I'm limited in power. God is almighty. He possesses all power. He's omnipotent. I'm limited in knowledge. doesn't matter how hard I study. doesn't matter what books I own, what I master, how much time I spend on a certain subject. There's always going to be more to learn. But God is all-knowing. He's omniscient. He, he has full knowledge of everything, past, present, future. There's a theologian named uh, Wayne Grudem, and he says this, God isn't a bigger, better version of me. He's not. He's, the difference between, between God's being and our being is more than the difference between the sun and a candle. It's more than the difference between the ocean and a raindrop. It's more than the difference between the Arctic ice cap and a snowflake. It's more than the difference between the universe and the room we're sitting in. God is qualitatively different. And that qualitative difference is summed up in one word. Holy. The holiness of God means he ex exceeds all limitations. He is infinitely above us and beyond us. See, for me, the way I used to define holiness up until a couple of, like a handful of years ago was just absence of sin. And that's part of it, but it's not all of it. It's way bigger than that. It's way bigger than that. God's holiness is the most basic of characteristics that helps us understand who he is as God. I mean, he is powerful. He is loving. He is merciful. He is wise. He is unchanging. But, but his holy, he's holy in his power. He's holy in his wisdom. He is holy uh, in his mercy. 
which means it is exponentially more than anything you and I could possibly fathom, anything you and I could possibly begin to understand. He is completely off the scale. So if you and I were to judge ourselves based on a scale of 0 to 100 on mercy or power or wisdom, okay, so depending on the day, looks like I'm coming in at about a 45 out of 100. And God's 100. No, he's not. He is so exponentially greater than that, there is no scale to measure him. That's what it means that he is holy. That's why he tells us in Isaiah 55 that my ways are not your ways. My thoughts are not your thoughts. So high as the heaven is above the earth, so are my ways and my thoughts than yours. As high as the heaven is above the earth. So where, where, where do they connect? See, God is infinitely and exponentially higher, more mighty, more majestic, greater than we are. And Peter says, don't you forget it. Man, get your minds straight. Be focused. Don't go back to your old way of thinking. God is holy. And you need to be too. Now, that gets confusing, doesn't it? So what does it mean that I'm supposed to be holy, if that's the definition of holiness. It can't possibly mean the same thing, right? Well, it's the same word. It's the same to be separate, to be dedicated, to be set apart, to be cut off from. It's the same word. It just has a different application. So let me tell you what holiness in the life of a believer is not first. Okay? It's not to be holy, is not to be weird. Not all the time, anyway. To be holy doesn't mean that you prefer Gregorian chants to contemporary music. To be holy doesn't mean you carry around a big, thick 1611 King James Version Bible that you thump every once and again. To be holy isn't um, what you don't do. It's not about what you don't do. And let me explain. The the culture and and, um, uh, tradition that I grew up in and my wife grew up in, it was more about what we didn't do than what we did do. So here's some examples for you. We're holy, so we don't go to the movies. We're holy, so we dress with long skirts and don't cut our hair. That's modest, not necessarily holy. We're holy, so we don't go into dining establishments that serve alcohol. We're holy, so we don't listen to music that has a beat like that. See, the, 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 it's, that's not holiness. Holiness has nothing to do with the things you don't do. And holiness isn't just the absence of sin. It can't be just the absence of sin. You know why? Because Peter commands us to be holy right here. If he commands us to be holy, that means we can do it. And as long as you're breathing, you can't not sin. So it's way more than just the the absence of sin. So what is holiness in the life of a believer? Again, it still means to be set apart, to be dedicated. It's just a different application in our lives than it is to God. To be holy means that there is no area of our life that isn't his. Our entire life is dedicated to him and him alone and to none other. In the Old Testament, there were a number of items that were called holy. So you've got the there was uh, candles, clothes, excuse me, linens, um, certain utensils and oil. All those things had been given to the tabernacle or to the temple to facilitate worship, and they were called 
holy because they were dedicated to that purpose alone, to worship God and to no other purpose. You weren't allowed to go into the temple and take the temple's uh, um, linens for, for your potluck. It was simply for worship and worship alone. It was set apart, set aside, dedicated to God's service and God's service alone. For you to be holy means just that. It means that there is no area of your life that isn't dedicated to him. To be holy means to be dedicated and devoted to the honor of God. It's like dads, right? Dads, you, you, you are committed to the honor of your spouse, of your kids. You, you want them to have everything they need. You put them first and foremost above anyone else. You, you don't make a choice without considering how it affects them. You often sacrifice your own good, your own desires, your own wants, and often your own needs for theirs. And you, you want them to look at you with acceptance and joy, and you see their desires as commands that you get to fulfill, not that you have to fulfill. So here are some pictures of being dedicated and devoted to the honor of God in Scripture. You, you look at Mark chapter, oh, is it 14 or 15? 14 or 15, it's 14. Mark chapter 14, where Jesus is reclining at the table to have dinner with his disciples and a few other people, and as they recline for dinner, this, this noise happens in the corner, and in walks Mary, Martha's sister. And she walks slowly to the table where Jesus is reclining, and she's carrying something in her hands. It's an alabaster jar. Alabaster jar filled with precious perfume, spikenard. It's, it's, it's probably a family heirloom. It is so expensive. And here she walks slowly to the table where Jesus reclined to eat dinner. And she stands over him and says she shatters the alabaster jar. She crushes it so that all of the perfume, every last drop, pours out on Jesus. And some of the disciples lose their minds. Like, Why are you wasting it? Do you know what we could do with the money if we sold that? I mean, we could feed so many poor people. What are you doing? Well, what she was doing was confessing that there was nothing she would hold back because she knew who Jesus was. She would joyfully give him anything. See, that's what it means to be holy. To be so dedicated and devoted to the honor of God that there is nothing that you wouldn't joyfully give to him. To be, to be holy is to be so dedicated and devoted to the honor of God that there is no command that you will not obey. Think Abraham and Isaac. This is a crazy story. You got Abraham and his wife, Sarah, being so, so old and beyond the age of childbearing. No children. They've had none. They have no boys. What are they going to do? And the angel comes and says, you're going to have a son. And they laugh. They laugh because we're old. We're not having any kids. That's hilarious. So they laugh um, until they had a kid. Miraculously, they named him Laughter to remind them of the, the feeling in their heart when God promised the impossible and then delivered it. Isaac, meaning laughter. 
So now Abraham has this son that God had promised him years before. It's the fulfillment of this great covenant that God had made with Abraham. And Abraham can look at Isaac and go, I get it now. Out of Isaac is going to come so many descendants, more than the stars of the sky, more than the sands on the beach. This, this completely makes sense now until God one evening speaks to Abraham and says, Abraham, I want you to take your son, your only son, Isaac. The one you love. And give him to me. Take him to a mountain that I will show you and sacrifice him there. Okay, so let me be honest. I would have had a week or two week or three week or year long argument with God starting at that moment. No, God, this doesn't make any sense. You promised me I would have heirs. This is the only son that I have. If I sacrifice him on that mountain, then, then how are you going to keep your promise? You, you said it yourself. I love this kid. I am, no, no, nope. How did Abraham respond? It says, very early the next morning, he got Isaac, got his servants, gathered the materials, and headed to the mountain that God had pointed him to to sacrifice his son. That's holy. That is being dedicated and devoted to the honor of God in that there is no command that he wouldn't obey. This week I came across another pastor out of New York City. Tim Keller was preaching and he used an illustration that I want to use out of 2 Samuel 23. It's fascinating because I believe it is a picture of being holy. It's talking about David's uh, mighty warriors, 2 Samuel 23. And it gets to one of the stories where, um, so short, people tend to skip right over it. Uh, David is in the cave, Adullah. The Philistines are attacking. They've gone into Bethlehem, and they have They've besieged it, and so they're, they're set up. They're encamped against Bethlehem. There's no getting in or getting out of Bethlehem without coming face-to-face with the Philistine soldiers. David has fled. He's sitting in this cave. He's hiding. He's hungry, and he's thirsty. And in that moment, as the three mighty warriors come to check in on their king, who they love, they come to check in on their king, and David, you don't know what he said. I mean, he's just like sitting there talking to the boys. He's like, man, I am hungry, guys. I'm so, I'm so thirsty. And, and you can, <laughs> I don't, maybe, okay, I do this. You, you start to think about how hungry or how thirsty you are, and it's like, you know what I could really go for right now? And there's that thing. So, so, so hungry. Oh, I would love to go back to Chicago to get a Portillo's hot dog right now. If you've never had a Portillo's hot dog, it's worth driving to Chicago for I would, oh. David's kind of doing the same thing. He's sitting in the cave with his three mighty warriors and he's daydreaming and and, and just kind of mentioning things that come come out of his mouth and an accidental loud sigh almost where he says, I'm so thirsty. You know what I could go for? I would love. Is that well in Bethlehem? The water from that well is just amazing. I would love to have a drink from that well. That would be amazing. Oh, I miss that. Now, we don't know what makes the water so special at the well. 
We just know David longed out loud for that water. You know what happened? The three mighty warriors strapped up, got their swords, headed out of the camp, right into the teeth of the Philistine army. They fought the Philistines off of them as they burst into Bethlehem, found the well, filled their containers, and then had to fight their way out of Bethlehem again and headed, now this is actually kind of funny, headed across a desert, a desert, holding water for somebody else. They get back to David and they hand him the water from this, this incredible well in Bethlehem. And David's like, I didn't even ask for this. Where did this come from? And it was simply because they heard the deepest desire of their king. Now, I'll share this with you and I'll go back to the main point. The story finishes with David takes the water and dumps it out on the ground and says, I can't drink this. If you're the guys, you'd be like, what are you doing? Do you know what we just did? But David's point was, I don't deserve that level of devotion. Only God does. See, that's what it means to be holy. It's not that you have to do something for God. It's that you catch his heart in such a way that it's your greatest joy to do something for God. To be holy goes beyond rules, goes beyond commands, goes beyond the requests of God. We hear his preferences and wants, and we long to do it, and we do it with joy. And Peter says, listen, you've got to be careful. Be ready, be focused, get to work, don't go back. God is holy. Make sure you view him as holy. And because he is holy, you need to be holy. And if you capture that, the, the grandness of God, the greatness of God, the, the almighty God, the, 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 the so much more than me God, you're going to live a life that's marked by complete difference in everything, whether it be at work, at home, online, in traffic. Your life is going to be marked by a difference. You know why? When you have a view and an understanding of how exalted God is, you can't help but respond when you understand how far he came to redeem you. When you understand what he did to purchase your soul, not with gold or silver, not with things that perish, but with the precious blood of Jesus Christ, it's going to change you. It's going to change you. The God we worship is so much more unique and wonderfully different than we are. And yet before the foundation of the world, <coughs> excuse me, he knew what it was going to cost to purchase your soul. And he still created you. That'll cause you to live different. Let's pray together. Father, thanks for the goodness of your kindness. For the depth of your grace. Father, for not, for not being like us. <coughs> Thank you.
Thank you for loving us, for caring for us, for purchasing us. Thank you for giving us reminders of how much bigger than us you are. Please, Lord, would you, would you help us to really feel that? To simply be overwhelmed. That a God like you would love me.